This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. From the Head Stuff Podcast Network, welcome to the world according to Wikipedia, the podcast that explores the weird, wonderful, and baffling world of Wikipedia, the people who write it, and what makes them tick. With me, Fanula. And me, Rebecca. In this episode, we're going to talk to Gavin Wilshaw, the Digitization and Digital Engagement Manager at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. You know, we've talked about the Creative Commons license Wikipedia is published under. Yes, I do seem to remember us talking about that a lot in the past. And I've also mentioned that Wikipedians tend to favour more open sources when they are creating, expanding or improving articles as well. This means that they use material that is available under a CC, Creative Commons, or another open license, or that has fallen out of copyright and into the public domain, instead of material that might be behind paywalls or other barriers. And they do this wherever possible. Yeah, I am beginning to understand that it's one of those founding principles of the platform. Yes, I always say kind of part practical, part philosophical. You know, it's what, what is the easiest, easiest thing to reach for. But what this means is that Wikipedians love content that is available under a compatible license. Um, even better if it is in the public domain, as when you, you know, say you have like an old out of copyright encyclopedic article. So say from you know, the, the 1898 Encyclopedia Britannica or something like that. When you use that to create a Wikipedia article or to write one, you don't have to use lots of those inline citations as references. You can pop a tag at the bottom of the page saying that this article is based on this content in the public domain and linked to it. Oh, that sounds neat. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. And for a lot of that historical content, is, you'll see it quite a bit. You know, things that you would imagine were covered in old-fashioned encyclopedias will tend to have that kind of content rolled into them. A lot of these public domain sources live on a sister Wikimedia project called Wikisource, and that's what we're going to learn more about in this episode's interview. Hmm. For this episode's random rule, would you like to know why some Wikipedians have strong feelings on Pokemon? Well, I have strong feelings about Pokemon, so... Yes. I'm starting to get the impression that the main thing people are learning from this segment is that some Wikipedians have very strong feelings about lots of things, but however. There is a rule on Wikipedia known as the Pokemon test, and this appeared around 2007. The Pokemon test. So around this time, a discussion emerged on Wikipedia about whether or not every single Pokemon was notable enough to have its own Wikipedia article. And some people got quite exercised about this. Many of them worried that Wikipedia would end up being dominated by these articles and that it wasn't a good use of time and resources to have them and that it generally kind of lowered the tone as to, you know, what was an emerging encyclopedic project. Others worried that the existence of these articles meant that other less notable subjects would also end up with articles with arguments kind of emerging along the lines of if we can have articles for every minor character in Star Wars, Star Trek, and each of these pesky Pokemon, we can have an article about X. Hmm. So uh, with all of this discussion and I, you know, back and forth, was there an actual outcome? 
Ultimately, a lot of these Pokemon articles were deleted or merged into list articles. Uh, it now describes this, this Pokemon test, how subjects that are not notable enough to have their own article will be merged into lists or other articles. So you'll see that merge tag happens quite a lot and you might get a redirect that brings you to a longer article on something, especially if you look up fictional characters. Mm-hmm. It'll bring you to the main page on the, the fictional work rather than a biography on that character. However, over the years, some of these original deleted Pokemon articles have been recreated successfully, as some of them did eventually become notable enough in their Pikachu. own right. I think Pikachu always had its own article. Air own article. Um, But I don't test me on my Pokemon knowledge. It'll fall down quite quickly. Um, (laughs) One of the main criticisms of this test is that, you know, notability for a Pokemon will not be equivalent to notability for, say, a writer, an artist, or other fictional characters. And this works both ways, as comparing forms of notability across subject areas, you know, is not always a direct comparison. Mm. Interesting. I imagine this has led to occasional, again, robust arguments in the sandbox. Uh, Not just in the sandbox. Uh, It is probably now less invoked, but it's now the argument would be what we call WP colon whatabout, which is a shortcut on Wikipedia, which is basically whataboutery. It's not a valid argument to keep or delete an article uh, with an argument like, and this is a quote, uh, there's an article on X, uh, and this is just as famous as that. Or we do not have an article on why, so why do we not, so we don't need an article on this. So this kind of whataboutery is not allowed as a, as a valid argument in. Okay, so the, the article has to stand on its own or, or be deleted on its own merits. Precisely. Aha. Uh-huh. See, I am actually learning something. I'm like getting there. Involuntarily. Yeah, it's just kind of absorption. It's It's osmosis sinking in there <laughs> just keep i'll just keep invoking uh, i was going to say old media but of course pokemon is no media is it pokemon's still current pokemon is old media pokemon was around in the 90s i'm afraid that is now ancient yes but it's been ancient i was in and again um not wikipedia related but i was in the shops yesterday and noted that uh Supergrass's debut album is coming up on its 25th. No, it's, it, it has released there, been re-released as a 25th anniversary edition. And I am not happy about that. Nope. Yeah. And then somebody pointed out that Hanson's Umbop is also 25 years old. So uh, time is no longer a flat circle. Uh, it is just extending out into the deep darkness of despair. Um, so. Turns out that time is in fact linear. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, you wouldn't know it from the last year and a half, but yeah, it turns out. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll character actor is a supporting actor who specializes in playing unusual interesting or eccentric characters for whatever reason these performers are less concerned with being stars because of that they often take supporting roles in big movies or only play leads in indie films or tv they're less concerned with their image they can bounce between heroes or villains they're chameleons and they often disappear into each role so you might know the faces but you might not know the names so subscribe to us wherever you keep subscribed for podcasts and be on the lookout for that to come and until then uh, see you later cinephiles bye bye
We're now going to talk to Gavin about the project he did with the National Library of Scotland and Wikisource during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Gavin Wilshaw. I'm the uh, Digitization and Digital Engagement Manager at the University of Edinburgh Library. Um, so the main part of my, my current role is around about digitization activity. Um, so I manage a team of photographers and digitization assistants and imaging professionals, people who basically photograph and scan objects and items from the heritage collections. So that's uh, the university is about four, over 400 years old. So we've build, built up a lot of interesting stuff over the years. And yeah, my team is the guys that get the, the sort of lucky chance to photograph them. So they all the rare books and manuscripts, paintings, museum objects, all that kind of stuff. Random things like we've got a sample of Alexander Fleming's mould that he gave, he donated to the library, um, and also we've got a painting of um, Sean Connery posing as a life model um, from the Edinburgh College of Art as well. So it's, it's completely random. It's all the rare books and archives, but also random things uh, like that. So that's my sort of day job managing that. But I'm also obviously a very enthusiastic uh, Wikimedian as well. Tried to sort of. It's not really in the job description, but I've tried to kind of bring that in wherever possible into to the work that I've been doing. So I've run, a, I've run a few events at the University of Edinburgh and some projects at the National Library of Scotland where I've worked previously. And I've also kind of the self-appointed title of being the Wikimedian in residence for Portobello in Edinburgh, where I, where I live. Um, so I've kind of given myself that title. I, I don't feel like I have enough time to really do that justice, but I've done a fair bit of work here in terms of getting kind of local people involved in um, writing articles about people and buildings and that kind of stuff in the area. So yeah, really, really, really interested in Wikimedia and trying to kind of shoehorn it into my job a bit more as well. I do like the idea of appointing yourself a local Wikimedia in residence. I might, mm. I might take that uh, and run with that myself because I've been doing similar lockdown activities uh, going yeah, around. Yeah, no, I recommend it. Brilliant, brilliant. So yeah. how, how did you get involved in Wikimedia projects? And I suppose more specifically for for us here, Wikisource. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think with Wikipedia, like a lot of people, I've probably always used it um, in terms of as a information source, a way of finding out information. But it was only really 2014, 2015 or so when we, um, me and some colleagues at the University of Edinburgh, got training from Ali Crockford, who was the she was the Wikimedia in residence at the National Library of Scotland. I think she was the first Wikimedia in Scotland. Um, so she, as part of her job, she was doing a lot of outreach work. So got trained up at a Scottish Women in Medicine Edithathon, yeah, 2014, 2015 or so. And I just, I just had that experience that I think a lot of people have of that kind of spending a couple of hours researching someone, writing an article, and then that whole thing about seeing, checking Google a couple of days later and seeing that thing that you've written kind of appearing at the top of the search results. So that was that was obviously the kind of the hook that I think a lot of people get is that you kind of really can very quickly see the impact of what you've what you've done. Um, and it's nice kind of looking back, even going back to that kind of first article I wrote and seeing that there's been sort of 20 or 30 different people have all edited that article since I first created it. So you kind of, it's that feeling of kind of creating something and releasing it into the wild and then just letting it go, take its natural course. And yeah, that's just, I've always just found that really interesting. Um, and of course, working in, in libraries, just very much aware of the sort of, the importance of, of the Wikimedia projects 
as ways of raising awareness of collections and services and, and generally that whole kind of open open knowledge agenda, how, how libraries can kind of feed into that. So that's kind of been my sort of professional interest in it is how we can feed more of the stuff that we do into these platforms to improve improve them, improve the quality of them, but also raise the awareness of, of the sort of unique items and objects and things that we have in our collections as well. So that was my kind of entry point into Wikipedia. And I suppose since then, I just kind of tinkered a lot with, with the different projects, particularly I, I managed a big project at the university to digitize the PhD thesis collection. Um, and as I was mentioning, the university is several hundred years old, so the collection goes back several hundred years. So I tried to use a lot of the stuff that we digitize in that collection and sort of do little pilots on, on Wikimedia projects. So one of those is Wikisource. So we loaded one of the, the we loaded one of the um, PhD theses into Wikisource, um, just as a kind of a test, really, to sort of see how it, how it all worked. And yeah, for the benefit of listeners who might not know what Wikisource actually is, um, so Wikisource is Wikimedia's online library of, of digitized out of copyright books, kind of similar to sort of Project Gutenberg or some of these other platforms. It's lots and lots of, of, of digitized material that's out of copyright, so you can do whatever you like with it. And yeah, we thought let's let's try uploading one of our PhDs to see what the process is like, what the benefits would be like, that sort of thing. And I think one of the big things that we noticed is that when we uploaded this thesis, it was getting clicked on a lot more. The the, the wiki source copy was clicked on something like ten times more than the original item was downloaded from the from the repository over a period of sort of six months. So I think it was downloaded something like. 15, 20 times from the repository, but it was the page was viewed over over a couple of hundred times on Wikisource. Um, so it's just a really obvious um, example of how putting stuff in these platforms kind of it, it does lead to to more exposure, even if there's no way of kind of assessing the quality or the value. Like what were they clicking on it for? You don't know, but you're still having those kind of quite stark difference in numbers really did show that there was value in putting stuff on Wikisource. And again, things like with search results. Again, if you Googled if you Googled the, the thesis title, the Wikisource one would always come up higher than our own repository one because of the quality of the search engine optimization. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of the real my real interest in Wikisource was just seeing that it could have it could raise awareness of, of, of theses or collections items. And obviously, when something's on Wikisource, it can then be linked into all the other Wikimedia projects. So the the Wikisource thesis linked to the author's article page on Wikipedia, for example. So it's it's embedded in that sort of open knowledge network rather than just floating in on its own sort of page on a library repository. It's actually embedded in the kind of the, the bigger picture of of Wiki. So yeah, that, that was that was kind of how our journey to the Wikisource. Um, but we never really I never really got a chance to do much more than just this dabbling, like uploading a book. Um, and seeing how it went but that all changed that was one of the one of the few benefits of, of the lockdown was that when I was working at the National Library last year is that I got the opportunity to do a really big bulk upload of digitized books to Wikisource so yeah we took we took that advantage the advantage of the opportunity essentially there was a lot of library staff who had to work from home but because of the nature of their roles they didn't really have much that they could be doing from home so things like the guys who fetch the books from the stacks so their job is to find books and deliver them to the customers obviously when they're um, working from home there's kind of not much they can do in terms of their day-to-day job same with a lot of the customer facing roles certainly in that initial period of lockdown I think after some time obviously they became a, a digital interface was developed so that staff customer facing staff could 
people still continue doing their job. But in the initial few months when it was really just trying to find work for people to do that was useful, this this uh, was a really great opportunity to to get a lot of people involved in Wikisource. Because um, it does take time if you add something to Wikisource, it requires quite a lot of manual work to make the, the books suitable for use. Um, so, yeah, essentially we uploaded about 3,000 um, Scottish chapbooks. So these are, chapbooks are like, what are they? They're kind of cheap reading material that was circulated at things like fairs and on the streets and in pubs and taverns in the sort of 18th and 19th century, kind of before there was much of a mass media in terms of newspapers and that kind of things. So it, it, it tend to be a a mixture of news and scandal and gossip and stories. So lots of things like um, accounts of murders and um, shipwrecks and love stories and ballads and all this kind of stuff. So it's really interesting from a sort of social history perspective. Um, and you tend to have somebody would buy one of these from a, a chat man and then they'd like read it to an audience. So it was kind of like a it was kind of like a, a pre-modern way, I suppose, of sharing news and gossip and that kind of thing. So the content is really interesting. It's it's not they're not dry. So we, yeah, we've got 3,000 of these, so we uploaded them and onto Wikisource. And there was a big, basically a big project to get people looking at through these. Um, the actual work itself was, um, because when, when you add something to Wikisource, you run it through um, an automated transcription process called OCR, Optical Character Recognition. So, you yeah, you load the books onto Wikisource, software reads the text and kind of automatically generates a transcription. But there's always a lot of errors in them because the software is not perfect. And especially these books have got lots of the kind of archaic letters and things in them as well, like the uh, the long S and the the AE letter, I don't know what it's called. Um, so even though an automatic transcription has been made, it requires humans to check the transcriptions and correct errors. So that was what we got staff doing really is um, checking those errors and making sure that the transcriptions were fully accurate. Ultimately, the intention was that if we load all the books onto Wikisource, correct all the errors in the OCR, create 100% accurate transcriptions, and then export those transcriptions back into our own repository so that we could then have really good quality transcriptions for people who want to use the collection. So if somebody wants to like do a keyword search, things will, will work. And similarly, for things like digital scholarship, if, some, if somebody wants to do some, some text mining or data mining of the collection, if they've got a, a completely accurate transcription, then it allows it means that the results are much more accurate. So yeah, that was the kind of um, that was the intention and uh, behind why we did that. And um, yeah, it was it was really positive overall. Yeah. So what was what was you're saying? It's, it's positive. But what was the response from the staff? How did they react to to such a, a unique, I suppose, or very different uh, project? I would say that the initial response was like, "What is this thing?" I think that was probably the first the first challenge was just that whole bit about kind of making people understand I, th- I think even what people understand what Wikipedia is but I don't think there's a lot of understanding around about um, the other projects some people maybe wiki commons have a, people have a bit of an understanding that that's kind of where the fight the photos and the files and that sort of thing sit but yeah wiki source is a, a bit more um, off the, the beaten track in that sense so yeah the initial response was kind of like not sure what this is, but I could very quickly make the case for the value of engaging with it, engaging with it, as I've just kind of mentioned. So once staff got into it, they were really enthusiastic, particularly as, as I was saying, a lot of the staff who worked on the collection didn't really get the opportunity to work with collections very much. 
So people, so okay, guys maybe fetching books from the shelves. We don't get to open the books very often, or security staff, for example, who who, who provide a, an important function for the building, but they don't they don't really perform a library function. They're just kind of it's a fairly generic kind of security role. So people who who didn't normally get to see the collections themselves were now given this opportunity to kind of go through things page by page and really get a a better understanding of um of some of the collections that we had. So. We had, yeah, in total, there was, at its peak, there was about 70 people, uh, seven zero people working on the project at any one time. So that was about 20% or so of the library staff. I mean, not, not everyone was working out full time. It was a bit of a kind of a mix between uh, people doing a bit in, in sort of downtime or, or whatever. But um, it, was, it, was, it was really good and it, it gave the staff kind of something, um, a bit of a, a shared experience, something to work on. I particularly, I think we kind of forget how difficult and traumatic those early weeks of lockdown were, when nobody really knew how long this was going to be going on for and how dangerous the virus was. And I think now we're kind of beginning to adjust life to accept that we, we we're now going to have to live with with this, and the world is kind of slowly getting back to some sort of normality. But in those early weeks, in sort of March, April last year, I think nobody really knew what was happening it was the first time a lot of people had worked from home so I think it gave working on a project like this kind of gave them a sort of bit of a shared positive shared experience to, to, to sort of keep people connected in a sort of difficult time when everyone was suddenly stuck at home and couldn't see each other it gave like a, a nice project to bring the library community together so that that was kind of fed yeah people kind of fed that back at the end and I think it also it just helped with sort of digital skills as well people who maybe didn't have didn't use computers very much in their day-to-day jobs were now kind of, they've now learned the basics of HTML code because uh, Wikisource doesn't have a visual editor like Wikipedia has. So it, it, it's a bit more, it requires things like yeah, a bit more tagging and um, using some very basic code to things like the sort of position text on a page and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, people did develop those skills they didn't have before. So I think that was a really, really positive thing. And certainly from from my perspective, it's kind of, it raised awareness of, of Wikimedia because all of those people had to create Wikimedia accounts, um, and we got some good sessions in from from you and McAndrew and Sarah Thompson came and did a really good talk to all the, the team about Wikipedia and Wikisource. And I think there was a few events running over the summer, so basically people were just getting a lot more engaged. And we, we ended up setting up a, a community of interest for the National Library of Scotland, which is is I think is, is still running and it sort of meets every month or so. So it kind of got had more of a lasting effect that people have had this exposure to it and they've, they've, they've seen what it is, they've learned a bit more about it and it's now become a bit more part of the library's work. I think some staff as well have started to kind of do it as part of their day-to-day job now as well so it's actually almost become sort of coming embedded to some extent in what people are doing on a day-to-day basis so staff who maybe work at a, a service desk who have kind of quiet periods when there's not much happening in the reading room for example this is kind of a task that they could do. They could log into Wikisource, make a few corrections in the transcription, that sort of thing, log out again. So it's the perfect, it's the perfect piece of work to do when there's like those five or ten minutes of downtime when you want to do something a little bit different, want a little bit of break from your day to day. So that's that that was beginning to be built into some people's jobs as well. So that's and that's a really positive thing, making it sustainable. So yeah, so that was the kind of the staff itself. And I think, yeah, the senior management were were very happy to have something that could something of, of value that people could be working on during particularly during the early months of the lockdown. I think that that sense of um I suppose almost it wasn't quite community care, but that sense of um I suppose having that sense of connection with 
your colleagues. I think that's that's yeah. a really interesting outcome from it, and that there was kind of a shared goal, something that you're all working towards in a rather, I suppose, like you were saying, quite frightening period of time, without really being aware of how frightening it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even just even things like Microsoft Teams and stuff. Like I think a lot of people talk about how how useful video conferencing has been, and that, that has been really useful. But even just having the kind of opportunity for chats and doing things like doing little quizzes and stuff with the group as well. So not necessarily related to the work at all, but we tried to do kind of like a weekly quiz for people um, who were part of this community as well and try and make it as a social thing as well, not purely a work-related thing. So yeah, um, I think that was, from my perspective, that was one of the really surprising but really good outcomes. I mean, I think when we first started, my intention was really, we want to get these accurate transcriptions. That was that was it really. I didn't really think about that kind of all the other positives it was going to have in terms of skills development and building a community and yeah awareness raising about wikipedia and all that kind of stuff so did uh did anybody get competitive uh, did they get, i'm not sure because it's because it doesn't um there's no obvious way of seeing who's done the most it's not like with um one lib one lib one ref where you've got your leaderboard there you can kind of clearly see who's who's done what is it tended to be, the motivation tended to be that people were interested in the collection and that they liked it. And because the um, the books that we loaded were all quite small, they're sort of like 10, 15 pages, they're little pamphlets rather than anything. So you're not talking about somebody sitting through a sort of 600 page book over chipping away at it over months. It was very much manageable. You could spend a few hours to do an entire story. So you could read it from the start to finish. You, you could You could find out what happened in the the murder case or whatever it wasn't it's not just like doing some random pages from a random book you actually got to sort of the person would take it and do it from start to finish you'd actually get to, to read it and experience the the content as well as just doing the transcription but yeah i wasn't aware of any competitiveness but not to say there wasn't in that way it's i suppose it's more similar to I suppose, letter transcribing like you were saying because it's, yeah. it's quite a compact piece and you get the full the full arc Exactly. Yeah, it's much more, much more similar to that. Like they're just a little A5 booklet kind of things. So yeah, people liked that, that experience. Well, I thought that was fascinating. It was really interesting, wasn't it? I have to admit, I haven't had much interaction with Wikisource, but it always, uh, it always excites me every time I hear about it. Yeah, what I thought was particularly interesting was how they got people who would typically not have been involved with the day-to-day work or have just been involved with the scanning of it but not the actual reading or interacting with they got more hands-on experience with the material because they were having to ensure the OCR the um the robot reader had read it correctly so they had to go through it and and make changes and things like that and, and because the the chapbooks were small in nature it wasn't boring you know you were doing like 15 pages and then you were out, you know, it's yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. I think the idea of, you know, people who work uh, what we would tend to refer to in the glam industry as front of house. So, you know, mm-hmm. being on the welcome desk or perhaps helping with, uh, you know, wayfaring, getting people around the place and security and things like that. But actually they do get to know the, they do get to know the material, but in a very specific way. So yeah. giving them the ability to have, I suppose, um, what would be closer to a curatorial or a, an archival experience of the material is quite quite interesting and that you know there was that collection kind of waiting in the wings that was quite digestible and and um you know posed its own issues and you know didn't you know didn't go perfectly 
and uh, yeah. you know it didn't unfold in the way they anticipated but um was still you know gave people something to focus on and something to work towards collectively during mm-hmm. that those very uncertain months which i think was a really interesting yeah outcome from it and the fact that they have seen an uptick in people looking at them because it's available now like so in chapbook form how many people were going into the library and getting those out 10 people in a year maybe you know but now they've had a number of people click on the links so again can't tell why people are clicking on the links but still getting the information is more accessible now as a result of being on there everybody wins everybody wins now he did go on a little bit more than what you've heard here in in today's episode and that will eventually when i get around to sending that in to the head stuff crowd sorry guys um that will make its way onto our uh, Headstuff podcast plus uh, the network It'll onto our particular page. And if you want access to that and everybody else's extra bonus material on the Headstuff podcast network, then you just have to go to headstuffplus.com. No, headstuffpodcast.com. I can read. Um, and uh, sign up for five euro a month plus fat and you will get access to everything that's a bonus material on all of the, the podcasts that are hosted on the headsofpodcasts.com website, which is a bargain, to be honest with you. There's so much material on there. And as I think we are not going to be back in the office imminently, um, you know, there might be some things to keep you occupied at home there. And as well as getting material from all of the really well-established um, podcasts that are on the network, there are new podcasts coming on online all the time and you will access to um, all the material that's being published from all of those fantastic creators from uh, and in Ireland. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, and it is, it is a community of Irish creators, which is nice. You know, it's good to support local. Um, and... Uh, and, and creators based in Ireland and about Ireland. Like I like the fact that there's the information in there is a, is about us. You know, it's about our crazy little country and all the things that are right and wrong with it. And also about things like Wikipedia, you know, because our take on the world. Bit of international flair there. Um, so yeah, headstuffpodcast.com. Go there. Rebecca, who is this episode's hero? This episode, I want to give a shout out to the organisers, presenters and attendees of the Wikimedia Minority Language Conference, which this year was called the Arctic Knot. Arctic Knot. I do love hearing about the minority language Wikipedia. So uh, can you tell me any more? Well, based on the heroes that I have chosen uh, over all our episodes, you probably notice that I also do love a minority (laughs) language uh, Wikipedia at the best of times. You might have heard some of our interviewees mentioning a conference called Celtic Knot over the, over the past few months, especially as in 2020, Ireland virtually hosted this conference. This was the first time it went virtual, and this year it was hosted by Wikimedia Norway, who adapted the title and called it the Arctic Knot. Ooh. Celtic Knot was created by Wikimedia UK and was held for the first time in 2017 in Edinburgh when the National Library of Scotland had its first Scots Gaelic Wikimedian in residence. To support this role, a one-day conference was held on the topic of minority languages to try and pool knowledge and expertise on the topic. It was a huge success and has been held each year since, travelling to Aberystwyth in Wales, uh, Penryn in in Cornwall, and then virtually to Ireland and Norway. So I presume the Arctic knot, I can say this word, Arctic knot is very difficult to say. 
has focused on the minority Scandinavian and Finnish languages. Then. Uh, so Wikimedia uh, Norway have been working for a number of years with particularly the Northern Sami uh, community, with their language Wikipedia. So that is a big focus uh, of this year's uh, conference, which uh, took place on the 24th and 25th of June. But mm-hmm. all of the sessions are available on YouTube, and we'll add a link uh, to that. And of course, this is also relevant to other Sami languages across that area of the world. So like you said, Finland, uh, Sweden, things like mm-hmm. that. And they face you know, a lot of the same challenges that are similar to other communities like accepted orthography, a lack of spelling and grammar authorities, and just that very small languages ha- tend to have small communities and how do you nurture them, you know, care mm. for them uh, when they have their own Wikipedia. Yeah, so it's nice that there are these conferences that are happening to kind of foster that support. Yeah, and also it's just, you know, when one other community has figured out, well, how do you get past the fact that, say, like Scots has, mm-hmm. you know, several different dialects. So how do you represent that on, on a Wikipedia without people getting really in the weeds about whether or not a certain spelling is accepted? And if another language group like Northern Sami or um, Berber or Dagbani, as we've talked about, have figured mm-hmm. that out and come to some sort of consensus, well, you could take that and say, well, would that work in our context? So you're not, you don't feel as alone you know, trying to figure out these things, you realise that there's a certain amount of camaraderie and that there are tools and resources out there that might not be immediately visible, but if you're talking to the right people, they're available to you. Nice. Yeah. Good news story. And that was The World According to Wikipedia. Join us in two weeks. You can subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. Follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. Thanks to Patricia O'Flaherty for our artwork and Headstuff for production assistance. Go to headstuffpodcast.com for show notes, more information, and to support the Headstuff Plus network. is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.